Good morning. A nice autumn morning feeling out there today. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Dennis Gardner. I'm on staff here at Terra Nova as its operations director. That's on the clock. Um, off the clock, I'm fortunate to serve our church in a, in a handful of different ways. Um, I'd like to start with something that we used to do often and we don't do as, as much now. I'm, I'm hoping to change that. Uh, there is a basket of blue Bibles over on that table right over there uh, where you came in. And they are there so that if you forgot to bring a Bible today, and it happens, um, you can use one of those. But more importantly, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is a gift to you. Grab one, keep it. It's free. And there have been times when, um, you know, over the years, somebody would come in and grab one of those Bibles, and then they'd be at Terra Nova for a few years, and I'd see them coming in a couple of years later with that, that Bible of the old beat up and frayed and written in and read and loved. So those Bibles are there for you. Uh, if you want one right now, you can raise your hand and somebody will put one of those right into your hands. We also live in a time where ancient and modern mix Right? We can put the living word of God into your little pocket computer in a matter of seconds, and then you can have it with you everywhere. There's a good app there. It's called Uversion. Right? If you want it right now, just point your camera right at the wall, and God's word to humanity will electronically travel from some server to a satellite and then shoot down from space into your hands and you will have the wealth of God's word in your hand in a matter of seconds. So uh, if you can just leave that up there for a couple minutes in case somebody uh, wants to use that. Um, I want to start by posing a question. Please don't feel the need to raise your hand. Have you read the book of Ruth in its entirety? I said don't raise your hand. So that Bible app has uh, on it the translation that we like to use here at Terra Nova, the English Standard Version. And on it is an audio option so that you can listen to the Bible. And the audio, audio recording for the Book of Ruth takes 14 minutes. The whole Book of Ruth takes 14 minutes. And what I do for my kids, and frankly for myself sometimes, is that I like to put time in, into perspective on how we use our time. It takes less time to read or listen to an entire book of the Bible than it does to watch a 22-minute sitcom, right? So in less time than it takes for Elaine to destroy the soup Nazi's business, right, we are able to have a beautiful, self-contained, true, historical narrative of God's sovereignty working in the will of the lives of his people in their circumstances. So it's a the Book of Ruth, we have a 14-minute snapshot of God's overreaching, redemptive story. And yes, we are in a sermon series. We're splitting these up into 10 different pieces. Uh, but in case you haven't gotten the hint, right, I'm kind of encouraging us to become familiar with the entire book so that we can be better informed of the big picture as we spend the next few weeks breaking up Ruth into pieces. You know, it's like, it's like when you watch a movie or you read a book for a second time. Right? The first time is like all surprises. Hey, that was really good. And the second time you kind of have that foresight and you read it with different eyes. That might be a lame example, but that's what it is. 
So um, I'm encouraging you, read the book of Ruth sometime this week. Today's passage, though, seven simple verses. It takes a minute to read. And uh, I know that because I listened to it in my car over and over and over again on the way back from the men's retreat, because uh, that's what I was assigned to speak on. So I read it a lot. But again, it translates so much better when the big picture is comprehended. Yes? yes. It gets dry up here pretty quick. With that said, we're in chapter two of the Book of Roof. I'd like to um, quickly give a recap of chapter one. So this is your first Sunday here, and the Ruth series is something new to you, or it might even be your first Sunday here in church. I want you to be able to have some context about what we're going to be speaking on today. Uh, you're basically going to be in ancient Middle Eastern school for half of the sermon. There's a lot of background. And if you have been here throughout Ruth, I'm sorry, there's no little clickable skip recap button in the corner of the screen. Okay, recap. The Ruth narrative starts in the time of the judges, which is just after Joshua died. And this is the Joshua, right? Moses, Joshua, then we jump into the, the time of the judges. And the time of the judges was disturbing, and it was violent, and it was a time in Israel's history that was filled with moral corruption, bad leadership, disobedience, frequent failures, because through Moses, God called his people to be holy, and they repeatedly fell short, and they largely forgot the character of God. This is the setting that we find Ruth. So we meet an Israelite family, a father, a mother, two sons, they're from Bethlehem, a famine hits the land, so they move to Moab, which is historically an ancient enemy of Israel's. And while there, the father dies. The two sons marry foreign women from Moab. Then the two sons die. And the mother Naomi is left with only her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Mother Naomi decides she's going to move back to Bethlehem. And knowing that she has absolutely nothing to offer, and that the lives of her daughters-in-law as foreign Gentile widows will be very, very hard, she compels them to stay in Moab and to be with their families. Orpah does. Orpah stays. Ruth vows to stay with Naomi. And by doing so, seemingly losing every chance she has at a new life and a new family. So I'm going to back up. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 from chapter 1. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, or more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is actually kind of huge. Uh, my wife pointed this out to me throughout the week when she saw the passage that I was going to be speaking on. What Ruth does here is she initiates a one-sided covenant with Naomi. One-sided in that it requires nothing of Naomi. But she's invoking God's covenant with his people, which was very likely taught to her from, her, from her, the family she married into. 
But listen, she ends with these words, may the Lord do so to me. Now that's significant because it calls back a covenant that Abraham had where sacrificial animals, you might remember Pastor Tori did this with stuffed animals, if you remember a while back. What, what the covenant would be is you would take sacrificial animals, you would cut them in half, and the parties in the covenant would walk between the halves of the animals, and they would call upon themselves, may the Lord do so to me if I break the covenant. So that's what Ruth says. It's pretty serious. So these women return to Bethlehem. And chapter 1 ends with Naomi's public lament where her name should be changed to Mara, which means bitterness, because, as she said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Recap. Tracking with me? Okay. There's part one of the story. Now we're, gonna, we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson, as I am apt to do. Pastor Tori, two weeks ago, he mentioned this, that as we go through the book of Ruth, it's going to require a lot of historical and cultural contacts along the way, especially as it pertains to women. And this is really important. In fact, you kind of know how important it is, because we see this in our time and place. We see it play out. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a, a term that's been floating around for this kind of thing. It's called presentism. Has anybody heard that one yet? Presentism is, is this. The uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. Numerous contemporaries do this. They have, and they still, whether they're doing it out of ignorance or whether they're doing it consciously, they, they apply this presentism to scripture to try to discount it. Like we're beyond that. So many things throughout the book of Ruth might make us like look and scream, well, that's just wrong. I don't, I don't care what time and place we're in or what culture we're in. But we have to do our due diligence, right? It's not just that we read scripture, we need to understand it, amen? I recommend a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Richards and O'Brien. And I'm, I'm only a quarter of the way through it, but Pastor Tori read the whole thing, so she said I can recommend it. <laughs> uh, the, the title of it says it all, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Uh, it's very insightful as to how we are kind of stuck in our time, and it's difficult to see things throughout without that lens. Um, so what I want to do is I want to start by looking at Ruth's status in her time and in her place. Uh, there's a list. If you could pop that list up there for me. All right. The following list comes from a book called A Loving Life. Pastor Tori has been referring to it by Paul Miller. Um, it's been very influential in how the pastors have broken up the Ruth series. Um, so I got this from there. It's a, it's a hierarchy of ancient Hebrew society. Let's roll down this for a second, okay? You have a king or a judge, top of the hierarchy, in this case a judge, because we're in the time of the judges. Um, you know that there are 12 tribes of Israel, so each tribe has a leader. Each one is broken up into a clan. So for instance, Bethlehem will have its own clan of such and such a tribe. Uh, there'll be a clan subgroup leader. We think Boaz is that. We think Boaz is a, a leader of that amount of authority. 
And then we get into the family proper, right? We have an older father or a grandfather, and then a father, a son, an eldest son, and then a younger son. Now, here we are, we're already halfway through the list before we even get to a female. Now, and I also want to say that there are exceptions because Deborah was a judge, um, so I don't want to skip by that, but for the most part, we look at the list. Uh, wife, daughter, male servant, female servant, female servants of lower class, and now we get into people who aren't Jews. So we get into a resident alien, a male foreigner, an unmarried female foreigner. That's where we find Ruth. She is at the bottom, the lowest class in the time and place that she's in. So this, this list kind of speaks for itself, right? So I'm not going to go into any more detail about it. It's, it's just good to take a look at it for a few more seconds and keep this in mind as we press on. I mean, I, I was trying to think of some kind of example that I can use to, to try to clarify how subhuman Ruth was probably viewed as, but I, I just couldn't. Second, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about uh, gleaning laws, which we don't think would be very important, but it rather is. Deuteronomy 24, if we go back to the first five books of the Bible, if we go back to the Pentateuch and the law, it has a list of miscellaneous laws that God gave to Moses for him to give to the people of Israel. And in it was things like, when a man is newly married, he shouldn't join the army. Or don't take an upper millstone as a pledge. Or be really careful of leprosy. Good stuff, right? This is, this is, this, it's good stuff. But if we get to verse 19 and verse 22, and it says this, when you reap the harvest, this, I'm sorry, this is Deuteronomy, verses uh, 23, or excuse me, 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And Leviticus 23, uh, verse 22, makes it even clearer. It says, when you reap the harvest in your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. For you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. For I am the Lord your God. Uh, so is this some kind of Middle Eastern welfare system? It, probably, in a way, yes. But, but what's more in line, I think, with God's character as seen through the law of Moses is that God wanted his people holy. God wanted his people set apart. So helping those in need, having in place provisions to help the poor wasn't just built into their day-to-day -day law or their economy or their daily expectations, but it was built to build into them a kind of giving and generous heart. The third piece of background, and here we go, I'm jumping the gun a little, all right? You may not hear again about the kinsman redeemer for another couple weeks when it comes up in the text, uh, but it's worth knowing a little bit about the kinsman redeemer so that we can understand exactly how significant Boaz is in today's passage. Um, consider it an introduction to later sermons, something to look forward to. But in brief, the kinsman redeemer, I'm going to read this, or the family redeemer, uh, was a cultural practice in Israel 
that if a man died, it was the family redeemer's responsibility or his privilege to marry the widow, oversee the deceased's land, protect that family, carry on the family line, and perpetuate the family name. Hmm. Spoiler alert. The kinsman redeemer is an Old Testament foreshadowing of Jesus. He redeems us in our great need. He bought himself, he bought us for himself out of a curse and made us his bride. Christ is the true kinsman redeemer of all who call on him in faith. And we're redeemed for his name's sake and we perpetuate his name. Pastor Tori, if you're watching this, sorry. <laughs> sorry I stole your thunder. There's a lot to share. I mean, technically, it's historical background, right? Great. All right, all of that. Let me get to our main point today. Our main point. God is plotting for his own glory by glorifying these persons through his providence and through their obedient and faithful actions. This is true of all God's children. That is a lengthy main point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it up there. It's at the top of every slide as we go on for the remainder of the sermon. And one of the interesting things about the book of Ruth is that God is hardly mentioned in the entire book. The narrator doesn't mention God at all, and, and God is only mentioned uh, by the players. Yet this book, and today's passage, seven short verses, shows God's will and God's purposes being worked through by obedient, human, faithful decisions. And none of these people ever stopped considering God, even in the time of the judges. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to break this down into a little and dive into the individuals to see how this main point plays out. So we'll start with Naomi. Let's see what God's sovereign and providential hand is seen through Naomi in these verses. We only have verse 2. In fact, we only have three words in verse 2. Verse 2 says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. So again, we need to back up. I know I'm screaming context, 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 but we need to back up. Consider Naomi's state from chapter 1. She allows Ruth to practice the lawful act of gleaning in a reaped field. Even though she has said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, okay. A little disclaimer. I, I want to be very, very careful about this. It's a dangerous game to interpret scripture by taking note of what's not there. Right? Maybe you've heard this. Well, Jesus never said anything about abortion. Therefore... Fill in whatever blank you want to there. It could be very tricky. I once heard a pastor, I once heard a pastor state, 
The scripture says, God says in the Bible, draw close to me and I will draw close to you. So therefore, if you don't draw close to him, he won't draw close to you. I call foul. But it can very well go that way. We need to be very careful. But I'm about to do it. So <laughs> I find it interesting. <laughs> I do find it interesting in this passage that the word forsaken is never used by Naomi, right? Years before her in Job, chapter 3, Job felt forsaken. God, why have you forsaken me? Years later, Naomi's great-grandson, David, would feel forsaken by God in Psalm 22. So say, God, why have you forsaken me is not an uncommon lament in Scripture. Naomi doesn't say this. She doesn't claim that God has forsaken her. She lamented. And if you remember, you were here last week, Pastor Tori gave us a, a, a really good definition of lament. He said it's a healthy raising of the fist toward God. A lament is not a denial of God's presence or an accusation of being forsaken. Naomi never stopped considering God's sovereignty, at least not that we know of, or at least not in this passage or this book. I like to think that maybe Naomi was more like, well, this is a real crap hand, but I guess I got to play the cards I'm dealt. But she never stopped believing in God's sovereignty. And again, maybe it's speculation, but her sending Ruth out with just those three words, go, my daughter, may be perceived as a true act of faith. Because what we're going to see here is what Ruth is walking out into is ridiculously dangerous. But God is plotting. God is plotting through the obedient and faithful actions of these people. So let's jump over to Ruth. Flashback in your mind to that ancient Middle Eastern hierarchy of 16, of 16 different people. And consider that as we see how God uses Ruth. Um, in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, the ever-popular John Piper breaks Ruth down for us into three parts. By her initiative, by her, her humility, and by her industriousness. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Her initiative, Ruth's love and Ruth's devotion and commitment to a mother-in-law, as we've seen already in chapter one, to this point still motivates her. Because Naomi doesn't command Ruth to go glean. Ruth humbly asks. And again, I, I, a little more background here. In this time and place, in this narrative, all right, societal identity is not individualistic. It's communal. Our identities or their identities were wrapped up in their family. And this is obvious by Boaz's question, right? When he inquires about who Ruth is. Now we would say, hey, who's she? But they would ask, who are her people? And Boaz asked, who does she belong to? Because she likely looked like a foreigner, and she was probably wearing the clothes of somebody who wasn't a part of the land of Israel at that point. And a female working without male accompaniment, 
would be viewed as either having no family or by being rejected by her family, especially a woman at the bottom of the social hierarchy. She's vulnerable, very vulnerable, sexually vulnerable as she goes out into this, alone, without any protection in the time of the judges. Just to, just to bang that home here, Judges 19 regales us of how a traveling Levite pushed his concubine outside the door of his dwelling to placate a bunch of thugs who were aroused to the point of perverse violence and they took advantage of her all night and the Levite found her dead on the doorstop in the morning. This is the kind of environment Ruth is going out. I tried to word that as diplomatically as possible with little ears in the room, but it's ugly. And again, that was potentially the environment that Naomi said, go my daughter. Ruth walked out into it. Ruth willingly walked out into it. Her love, her devotion, her commitment to her mother-in-law motivates her to ask to go out to work. So that's more than just initiative, right? There it is, it's courage. We also see her humility. Ruth doesn't demand a handout, even though as a poor widow and a stranger, per the law, it's her right to do so, but yet she asks permission. One gets the impression that this was a bit out of the ordinary, her asking permission, so much so that the overseer reports to Boaz this woman asked permission. She was keenly aware of her status as a foreigner, and as such, she, she really could have been forbidden to do so as a foreigner. But she was welcomed among the gleaners. And we also look at Ruth's industriousness. Again, long hours, hard work, seemingly unusual, enough to prompt the overseer to make mention of it. This writer, obviously, the writer of this book, I did a little thing, there, there's a bunch of people that um, biblical scholars think wrote the book of Ruth. Uh, I couldn't find one that I didn't want to mention. But the writer obviously wants us to admire this woman. Not just admire, but imitate. Again, verse two, and Ruth said, let me go into the fields and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Her courage, I'm probably gonna say this more than once, her courage is based on the confidence that she will find favor in the eyes of the master of the harvest. That was an insight my wife gave me when she was looking over my shoulder during sermon prep. Ruth's courage is based on the confidence that she will find favor in the eyes of the master of the harvest. Her acts and her attitudes have far-reaching implications, and her obedience and her ultimate redemption led to the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of the whole world through her courage. God is plotting. God is plotting through obedient and faithful and courageous actions. 
All right, I'll take a quick breath before we shift to Boaz. Something should be said about this overseer, the young man who is in charge of the reapers. Apparently there was more going on from, from some of the study I did when Boaz and the overseer show up. It's more than just, hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Great. No. Verse 4 says, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, according to an 18th century commentator uh, that I found by the name of John Gill, uh, he, he opened this up a little bit to, to, to what was actually happening. Boaz was saying, the Lord be with you, was to say, may the Lord give you health and strength and industry in your work. The Aramaic paraphrase is more like, may the word of the Lord be your help, is what he said. And the reaper's answer, the Lord bless you, was just like, the Lord bless you with a good harvest and a good weather to gather it in. You know what they were doing? They were praying over each other. Isn't that cool? And it showed a sense here. Again, a, a verse that we can just brush over, right? The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. More than that, right? It showed a sense that both the master and the servants had an understanding of the need of God's providence in their world at that time. Another commentator, James Kaufman, said it this way. The overseer was careful to point out that Ruth had received his permission, and that he mentioned her diligence in working all day, this surely indicated that the overseer was pleased. Not just aware, but pleased. And it also speaks to the kind of boss that Boaz is, right? We'll see more of that later when, when we see how he directs his workers to act around Ruth. But the overseer had a really small part in this, seemingly, but maybe not so small, right? He had a choice. He had a choice on how to deal with Ruth. And that was even before Boaz showed up. But the overseer's faithfulness to what he believed was the right thing to do in the eyes of his master was God plotting through his obedient actions. No small decisions. Got no small decisions here. So now we get to Boaz, right? I mentioned Boaz a lot already, so you would think there might not be too much more to say, but <laughs> there is. So chapter 2 is our introduction to this man, Boaz. Boaz is kind of huge. Throughout my sermon prep, uh, Boaz has been described in a lot of commentaries. He's been described as integrity, wisdom, compassion, generosity, uprightness. Verse 1 says, Boaz was a worthy man. And some translations say, a wealthy man in that very verse. And it is Strong's and Corns number H2428. It's pronounced, don't yell at me later about this, it's pronounced Chayil. Okay? And in 1 Samuel, that word is translated as a powerful man, it's also translated as a valiant man. And throughout the Old Testament, wherever that word shows up, a man of valor, right? And just the fact that we know not only was he a valiant man and a, and a faithful man and all that, he had great wealth. And he didn't think twice about going out into the field and look after his servants. It showed his diligence, it showed his industry, and it showed his 
humility. Is that enough? Yeah, we get the gist, right? Boaz was a good man, but not only was he a good man, he was a good man in the time of the judges. He was a man of God, and he had a reputation as such. And that prayerful interaction from before in verse 4, that was intentionally recorded by the author just to reinforce where Boaz's heart was. Again, John Piper said this in, in his book, if you want to know a person's relation to God, it helps to find out how far God has saturated them down to the details of their everyday life. Evidently, Boaz was such a God-saturated man that his farming business and his relationships with his employees was just shot through with God. He greeted them with God. And we'll see later that these are not just pious platitudes. And again, also we see a major player in this narrative. He's guided by obedience. Boaz is following the command from the Torah. But it's more than that. He is following Mosaic law in loving obedience. There's, I, just, I wrote it. There is so much more that I want to say about this. Like I was dying during prep. I totally want to jump ahead. There's so much more about Boaz being a foreshadowing of our true redeemer. But for now, we need to know that he was a good man what kind of redeemer this man was and what kind of man this redeemer was. Boaz is huge. We've got a lot more Ruth to go to, so get ready for it. It seems like all I've done is, is talk about a few biblical figures, right? What they did in their time, what they did in their place, what they did in their culture circumstances in which they were in. But are you catching the tone? Are you catching the tone here? That I'm saying that these people need to be examples to us. Every one of them. And that the walk of faith that we have in Jesus Christ is God plotting for his own glory Glorifying these people, these persons, through his providence and through our obedient and faithful actions. It's a challenge. I'm challenging you. I'm challenging me. So if you look at your guide page on the front, the title of the sermon, well, you don't actually have to, but... The title of the sermon is Selfless Love is Courageous. Yep. You glean that, right? You got that piece, that selfish, that there's, there's, there's courage happening here. There's courage through Naomi, right? Of her sending Ruth out into incredible danger. It can be perceived as an act of faith. We got Ruth. Her courage, again, her courage is based on the confidence that she will find favor in the eyes of the master of the harvest. It's courageous trust. The young overseer, the young overseer denied himself and treated the lowest of humans with kindness and respect. And Boaz has the courage to be a man of God in the time of the judges. Yep, selfless love is courageous. 
No argument. But I'm going to read the main point yet again. God is plotting for his own glory by glorifying these persons through his providence and through their obedient and faithful actions. This is true of all God's children. Here's an easier way to say it. It is not about us. Our computer screens are ever in front of our eyes these days, and I'm sure you see, you know, memes with inspiring words on them and maybe flowers or creeks in the background and all of these things. I found a few examples that just popped up. One says, the only thing that matters in life is your own opinion about yourself. Reach within yourself at the height of the storm for the eye of calm. Love yourself first and everything falls into line. <laughs> I just saw Heidi go. <laughs> what if Christians went through life acting obediently and courageously? with the overarching insight that it's not about us. Courageous actions are for God's glory, not ours. We glorify him, and any glory that we receive comes from him, not from ourselves. What if Christians went through life acting as though our circumstances aren't just accidents, but that God is plotting for his glory through our obedient and faithful actions. And that we're part of God's story. I, I hearken back at this point to Naomi's list of even ifs in chapter one. Do you remember? She was telling Orpah and Ruth, she listed this. And there was a, a bit of myopia there. There was a little bit of short-sightedness. Because she said, listen, even if I got married at this old age, even if uh, I got married tomorrow, even if I got pregnant the next day, even if those children were sons, this is the way she's seeing her hope is in these things. Juxtapose that to all of the just so happens is that we're seeing now. It just so happens to be the beginning of the Harley bar barley harvest, Harley barvest. It just so happens that Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. It just so happens that Boaz happens to be a relative of Naomi. It just so happens that Boaz happens to be on site that day, right? I read, I read another piece as I was studying that the Hebrew world generally didn't have any conception of chance because the truth that God was in control of everything was so ingrained in their consciousness that the writer of Ruth was actually being kind of cheeky by saying, just so happens, or allowing us to, to see that piece. And now, listen, pause. I might be teetering on the edge here of um, getting into God's sovereignty versus our free will. All right, Greater minds have tackled that one, not going down that way. That's what you got Google for. But 
another, another quote I get, Thomas Constable, Constable. He is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said this, the motif of God's providence in this passage, his working out his own plan through the circumstances of life runs through the book of Ruth. And it's especially strong in these seven verses. So the interplay of God's sovereignty and his purpose and his will being worked through human decisions and human obedience is just undeniable throughout this entire book. Great. There it is. These people are examples to us. We should be obedient. Sermon over? No. No. How do we walk in this? Obedience. Right? Obedience to God. Selflessness, as we see from Ruth. But again, I come back to the beginning about selfless love. Jesus pretty much laid this out for us, didn't he? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm still thinking about those stupid memes. But my heart breaks, right? This is what the world sees in front of them that they feel like they need to hear that you're enough when Jesus laid it out for us. Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. What Boaz did, what Ruth did, what Naomi did directly led to the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of the whole world through their obedience and their love for God and their love for others. Sermon not yet over. There's one piece left. Otherwise, the last few minutes might just be a, a different kind of, of meme that you see where you can just look at your computer and it'll say, selfless love is courageous. Ah, oh, it's not about us. And this isn't just to smoothly transition into our communion time. Uh, there's a certain degree of responsibility that weighs on me when Pastor Tori puts me here. Uh, Rachel and I were listening to one of Tim Keller's books on a long trip. Uh, the book is simply called Preaching. And he just flat out said, if you're a Christian preacher and your sermon doesn't point to Jesus, you fail. That weighs heavy. And if you've been to Terra Nova long enough, you've, you're very familiar with the, the verse in John 5 where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's them that bear witness about me. I mean, the encouragements and the life lessons and, and, and the things that we glean from these characters are good and they're necessary and they're challenging. Do you see Jesus in verses 1 through 7? I mean, I know the responsibility for that kind of falls on me today, but do you see Jesus? 
in verses 1 through 7? Did I put this up there? I did. The courageous love of Ruth testifies of the courageous love of Jesus. The courageous love of Boaz testifies of the courageous love of Jesus. And of Naomi testifies of Jesus. Is there a better example of courageous love than that of Christ? Feel free to say no. I mean, the common, so, so here, here's what you look like, courageous love. The, the combination of uncompromising courage and humility is pretty rare. The combination of authority and submission is pretty rare. But man, is it a beautiful combination that reflects and anticipates the character of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. You've probably heard this a million times, or you may be hearing this for the first time. Courageous love. The Father God, the sovereign creator of the universe, and all in it, right, authority, humbled himself and came as the man Jesus into a dangerous place sick with sin and with humility and authority he loved us so much with a selfless and courageous love to become a willing sacrifice shedding his own blood as a propitiation for the sin that separates us from Father God and we need only believe and accept this to be redeemed by him, to be part of his family, and to carry on his name. If that's news to you, there are people here who would love to tell you more. And they would love to pray with you. And when this service is over, if you need prayer, there is no rush. In fact, let me make it easy for you. Pastor, pastor, are you a tribe leader? If you're a tribe leader, raise your hand. Okay? Look around at these people. You can go to any of these people right now and ask for prayer. And they'll tell you more. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that your authority and humility and courageous love made it so that we could know you and know the Father and know the Spirit and that you've called us to yourself. And even now as, as we have a time carved out where we can literally take elements that represent your body and your blood. Just reinforce the weight and the depth and the beauty and the glory that is in Christ's death and resurrection. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be humble. 
Help us to be obedient. Help us to be like Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen.